Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The reformer Martin Luther once wrote, How shall a work please God if it proceeds from reluctant and resistant heart? To fulfill the law, however, is to do its works with pleasure and love and to live a godly and good life if of one's own accord without the compulsion of the law. This pleasure in love for the law is put into the heart by the Holy Ghost. So I want to welcome you back to our series on 1 Timothy, which we've subtitled The Plan for the Church and for Life. And we're in this series, as we have said, so that we may grow in our understanding of the church. We've been looking at the questions of what is the church, and what is the church for, and, and how is the church to operate in the world, and how do we, as members of the church, live in and around and as part of the church? And as we've touched on in the first part of this series, Paul tells Timothy the purpose of the church, right? The, the purpose of the church, he tells him in this letter in chapter 3, and that purpose frames for how we're going to talk about the church. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And what we understand right up front is the church doesn't belong to us. It's not my church. It's not our church. It is God's church. It belongs to Him. And that means it is to do what it, He says to do, and it's to be what He says for it to be. And I want you to notice the implications when He says how one ought to behave. What Paul is saying is that God has an expectation of how we behave as a church, in the church, around the church, and as a part of the church. Because it is His church. It is His family. The church is the body of Christ Himself. 
He also says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church is the God-given instrument that He is using to reach the world for the gospel. I want you to understand, the church, the local church, is the hope of the world. Because it's the instrument that God has ordained and is using in the world to proclaim the gospel around the world. Now with that, Paul writes this letter to Timothy because the church in Ephesus, where he was, Timothy was pastoring, had, had begun to drift away into theological error. And the reason for that is because false teachers had risen up to leadership in the church and they were teaching false doctrines. And Paul tells Timothy that he is to put an end to the false teaching, that he is to order these false teachers to stop. He invested the authority into Timothy to make them stop. And Paul explained that these false teachers are not doing what they're doing because they love God and love other people. They're doing what they want. they're doing is because, because they want to be well thought of. They want to be famous teachers of the law. They want to be popular. They want to be influential. They want to, to be rich. And to make things worse, they weren't even qualified to teach. Not only were they not qualified morally, but they weren't qualified theologically. They didn't even know the law of God or how to use the, the law of God per, properly. Which then leads Paul to momentarily digress from his main thought to explain what the law is and what the law is for, which is really profitable for us. Right? Which then led for us to spend two weeks unpacking the subject of the law of God. And we, we asked the foundational questions like, what is the law that Paul is talking about? And we talked about it's the moral law. It's not the ceremonial law. It's not the civil law that doesn't apply to us the moral law that was written on people's hearts, the moral law summarized in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments, which is further summarized by Christ in the New Testament in the, the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law is the law for all people at all times. And those, those precepts, those commandments don't change. This is the law that Paul has been talking about. And then we looked at the purpose of the law. And then we talked about the purpose of the law. It actually has four purposes. Number one, the law reveals God's holy, righteous, and just character. Number two, it restrains evil in the world because as we, we, we've discovered is the law, the moral law was already written on our hearts. That's why our consciences pierce us. It's also why all moral laws at the foundation civilly, the laws of the land have their foundation in the Ten Commandments. Right? The law of God restrains evil in the world. It also, number three, acts as a mirror for us to be able to see our need for Christ, for us to be able to show others their need for Christ. And then third, the law is a tool that's used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify believers as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. We just sang about, prepare me to be a sanctuary. It's a song about sanctification preparing me, changing me, shaping me, removing my sin. The law is a tool used by the Holy Spirit to help us remember who we are and to see our ongoing need for Christ. Those were the purposes of the law. And then we asked, how do we use the law rightly? Because Paul said, the law is good, the law is beautiful if we use the law rightly. So we then asked, what does that mean? And we talked about the fact that it depends on who you're talking to. It has two different applications for those who don't believe and for those who believe. Now, for those who don't believe, we use the law, as we said before, as a mirror to show them who they are. Right? 
We don't beat them over the head with it. We show them who they are by the Scriptures. And we help them to understand that whether they like to believe it or not, they are under that law. They will be judged by that law. And because of that, if they don't, if something doesn't change for them, they will be condemned by that law. And then we use that law as a basis for us to proclaim to them the good news, the gospel. So they can see who they are and their condition that they're in and their need for Christ. Then we tell them the good news of what God's done for them. That's the foundation by which we call them to repent and believe the gospel. We don't call them to repent and believe so they can start obeying the law to make themselves right before God. We call them to repent and believe so they put their faith in Christ and trust in Him alone. That's how we're to use the law, not as a club to bludgeon people to death, but as a sword, as a surgical instrument to convict them of their sins so that they can turn and believe and be saved. Now, for believers, we discovered that the way we use the law is different. It's different. The law still applies to us, but we use it differently. The law reveals for us what God's will for our lives are and what His expectations are. The law also aids in our sanctification because the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who's conforming us into the image of Christ, He uses the law to show us where we're falling short. It also helps us to see that we have been and we will always be dependent upon Christ and His grace. That never stops. The law reminds us we can't do it. We need Jesus continually. And the laws that remind us not to work harder or to try harder or be, to, to try to be more obedient, the law reminds us our need is simply to hold on to Christ and depend on Him to continue to do what He's been doing for us. And we continue to do what we've been doing from the beginning. You know what that is? Repenting and believing. That's all there is for us to do. Now with that, and this digression, Paul Right? His digression into the law actually leads to another digression. It's kind of funny how much I identify with Paul. <laughs> he gets a little bit sidetracked from time to time, but praise the Lord, it's beneficial for us. But now Paul's digression from the law reminds him right, that he, of who he is, it reminds him that he is what he is by the grace of God. Paul is not an apostle because he's some awesome, charismatic man of God. He's not, he's not an apostle because he's smarter than everyone else. He's not an apostle because he's a good speaker. He is an apostle in the position that he's in by God's grace and mercy upon him. You see, this section that we're going to look at today, Paul demonstrates for us the impact of the right use of the law. And the first thing we need to see here is the law, because of the gospel, ought to produce in us gratitude. Notice what Paul says. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. The law of God ought to move us to gratitude just like Paul. As Christians, the law ought to make us grateful. Now that might seem like a strange thing to say, but I want you to hear me out on this. There's several reasons why it ought the law of God ought to make us grateful. The first one is, is that we see who we were. The law helps us to see who we used to be. I think this is one of the most important things for us as Christians to be mindful of, is who we used to be. What we see in this text is the truth that Paul was completely aware 
of where he's come from and where, he has, where he's been and what he has done. Paul says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was a violent man. Let's not lose sight of that, that fact there. He was a violent man trying to eradicate Christianity. He was having people arrested and he was consenting to their death. He was actively, actively persecuting those who were sharing the life-saving message of the gospel. He was trying to destroy the work of Christ on the cross. And he was doing so with zeal and fervor. And this is something that, that, that Paul now sees as sinful. He now sees it as, as wrong. He now sees it with regret. Paul is reflecting on the gospel and the law. He's reminded immediately of who he once was. The law reminds him of who he used to be, and it ought to do the same for all of us. Because there's great value in remembering of who we were before. As a Christian, there's great value of never losing sight of who you were before. I was discussing the law of God online this week, and, uh, and I had someone who left a comment, and they said uh, that since, well, since I've been a Christian, not one time I've ever, ever thought about the law, because I'm not you know, under the law. I'm like, okay, fine. Right? But, but how do you know that you're even being obedient to God? How do you know that you're actually walking in His will if you don't have His law? Well, the Holy Spirit tells me that. Okay, brothers and sisters, I mean, I've heard that before. You know, the problem with that answer is this. Is it's a very subjective answer. It's a very subjective answer. Because how do you know the Holy Spirit's leading you or telling you what, how to live in God's will? Now understand, I believe that the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you. The Bible tells us that He will lead you and guide you. That He'll lead you into righteousness. But how does He do that? He does that through opening your eyes to the truth found in the Word of God, in God's law. The Holy Spirit uses God's Word right, and His law to guide our minds and our hearts toward obedience to the will of God. In fact, as our catechism said today, you can't even know the truth unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind. So understand, if the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into the truth, He's going to do so through the Word of God, not by your intuition. Not by your feelings or your emotions, but by the Spirit illuminating your mind to the law of God. Now, will the Spirit convict you and pierce your heart and prompt you? Absolutely. But if you're looking for the will of God, you're going to find it in the Word of God. And a big part of that is His law reveals to us what He wants from us. All right, now, my follow-up question is, okay, if you don't think the law... If you don't think about the law, if you, don't under, if you don't study it to understand it, how do you know to be grateful to God for what He's done for you? The law of God continually reminds me of who I was before Christ. I mean, I'm reminded continually of how hard my heart was. I'm reminded continually of what I was capable of before. I'm reminded of how I, what I did when I willfully rebelled against God. And that causes me to stand in awe of the fact that God would rescue a wretch like me. That God would change this hardened heart. That God would love with an agape. I mean, you, you understand that, that, that kind of love? That, that choosing to love in spite of me, right? That God would love with an agape love someone like me. 
Because the law also reminds me I didn't deserve for God to rescue me. I was rightly condemned. And if God would allow me to continue in my sin, and on the day that I finally stood face to face with Him, and He would have judged me, I want you to hear me. There would not have been a tear in heaven shed for me. Do you do realize that, right? That when the condemned are, are, are sent off to hell, no one's crying for them. All of creation shouts for joy when God's justice is done. Do you realize that? And that would have been the same for me. If I would have gotten the hell that I deserved, there would have been no tears for me, only shouts of joy that God's justice would have been done because I don't deserve God's mercy. An important part of the Christian life is understanding and remembering what God has done for us. And a huge part of that is remembering who we are. And the law reminds us of that. And that truth moves us to deep gratitude. Also notice Paul is aware of the grace of God in his calling. Because the law reminds us that it's by the grace of God that he calls us to serve him. I don't think we spend enough time thinking in those terms. Not only does God rescue us from sin and death and the curse of the law, He calls all of us to participate in the plan of redemption to save others through the proclamation of His gospel. The law reminds us that that is a privilege. A privilege is given to us by the grace of God. We don't deserve to take part in this. We don't take... We don't deserve to take part in the ongoing work of redemption. I mean, we're worse than the little kids. You know, when you're like, when you were a little kid and your dad was like working on the car and you just wanted to help and really all you were doing is getting in the way. We don't even deserve that much. We don't deserve to be ambassadors for Christ. What a privilege to be called that, an ambassador for Christ. We don't deserve the privilege of serving the master. Sometimes I think we feel like I'm serving God. <laughs> like, what would God, where would God be without me? Right? It's not that at all. Right? It is grace that He allows us to serve Him in any capacity. It's His grace that He grants us this privilege to serve Him. And Paul says, I, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me for this, for His service. He says, I thank Him. Now, you need to understand, Christ didn't judge Paul faithful because Paul is faithful. Christ didn't, Paul, didn't judge him faithful because something inside of Paul right, made him a faithful servant. He judged him faithful because he himself was going to make him faithful. He judged him faithful the same way that he judges Paul righteous. Paul is righteous by God's declaration of him being righteous. Paul is justified because God declared him to be, in his judgment, justified because of his faith in Christ. And by the same way Paul has made, made by the same way Paul was made faithful by Christ's sovereign declaration. Paul was judged faithful by Christ who appointed him to serve Christ himself. Right? Christ himself was the one who's actually going to work through Paul. You see, Paul was judged to be faithful because, not because of Paul, but because of Christ who works in Paul. 
Paul is faithful because Christ is faithful. Now, there's a couple of things for us to understand by implications there with that. Number one, service to God. It's not a place for you to write down on your notes, but you certainly are welcome to write this down. Service to God is a sacred privilege. Church, I don't think we ever talk enough about that. I don't think that we actually think enough about that. Sometimes I don't even think we even believe that. It's a sacred privilege. As we've said before over and over again, you are not saved for you. Yes, you benefit from your salvation. Yes, you benefit by being justified and the love of God is poured out on you. But you weren't saved for you. You were saved to be a part of God's work. And that is a privilege. If you don't see that, you're really not spending enough time with the Lord and really understanding the gospel. Just as your salvation is a gracious gift of God, so is the call to participate in His redemptive work. Number two, if God calls you to service, then serve with confidence. Do you know why? Because He's the one empowering you to do what you were called to do. Paul is faithful because God Himself grants the faithfulness. Do you, do you realize that? Do you understand that? If God calls you to serve, no matter what the capacity is, serve Him confidently because God will equip you for the task. Your job is to walk in faith and obey, trusting in God's provision. As uh, Mike Howard's late mother told me when I first began the pastor, if God will bring you to it, He'll bring you through it. That's why Paul says, I thank Him who has given me the strength. Paul is reminded by the law that he can't do anything apart from Christ. You see, the law ought to remind us who we are and help us to see how inept and incapable we are on our own and remind us of our need for His grace. And it ought to remind us that we are dependent upon Christ for strength. Sometimes I think that we become, we become Christians and we, we're excited and we, we love the Lord. And now that we're saved, it's like, okay, Lord, I got, I've got this now. <laughs> all right. you, you did the heavy lifting, now I've got the rest. It's not like that at all. You're continually dependent upon Him for everything. The law ought to help us to see our own limitations and help us to understand that if we are to do what Christ is calling us to do and to live the obedient lives that we're called to live, we're not going to be able to do that on our own. It's impossible. We need Christ to give us strength. As Paul reminds us in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's not talking about playing basketball, by the way. He's talking about enduring the Christian life, with all its ups and downs and its troubles, that all of it is dependent upon the strength of Christ. Even Jesus, I think, laid it right out for us. And when He says to abide in Him, in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 4, He said, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot 
bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The law reminds us of our need to abide in Christ for strength. It reminds us of our of our of the grace of God for service. And it reminds us of who we are. And for those reasons and more, the law ought to move us to gratitude. It did for Paul. We should look at the law of God and go, thank you, Lord. But not only does the law move Paul to gratitude, it also moves him to deep humility. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. By the way, everybody who sins against God do so in ignorance and unbelief. It's not that he's saying that he was somehow innocent. Right? Those who sin against God ultimately are ignorant of the gospel and they're unbelieving. But he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, the, the law of God humbles Paul. And it ought to do the same for us. The law of God ought to humble us as well. Paul says Christ came into the world to save sinners, which, by the way, is the mission of Christ. You want to know why Christ came into the world, what the, what the, what, what the, uh, the mission was? Is Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ did not come to bring world peace. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people get it in their mind that that's the end of what the Christian mission is. That is not the Christian mission. We obviously want to pursue peace at, all, at every point we can. We want to live peaceably, as Paul says, to the best of our ability with everyone. We certainly want to make peace. We want to be peacemakers. But, un but understanding that's not the mission of Christ. That's not going to happen until He comes back. You, we, we realize that. Can we just accept that truth? It's not going to happen until He returns. The mission of Christ is to save sinners, not world peace. And the mission of Christ is not to make you a better version of who you are. Again, there's a lot of, almost a sense when you talk to a number of of evangelicals today is that the idea of Christianity is for you to be a better person. Right? Yes, does Christ make you better? He absolutely does. If you're trusting in Him and leaning on you, He will make you better in the way you treat people and the way that you treat your family. Those things are byproducts, but that is not the mission of Christ. He's not here to make you you 2.0. And He didn't come here to give you a pain-free, problem-free life. Again, as the prosperity gospels will, will, will tell us, I mean, I heard that so many times as a new Christian. If you'll just believe, God's going to grant all your wishes and dreams. That is just not simply the truth. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't come here to give you a pain-free, problem-free life. He came here to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. The law of God humbles Paul, and it ought to do the same for us. It ought to humble us. Look at what Paul says. Christ came into the world to save sinners and 
I got so excited, I lost my train of thought there. Christ came actually to solve the world's greatest problem facing mankind. The fact that we are at odds with God. That's why he came. Brothers and sisters, that is the truth that we must be clear about. Let us not misunderstand the gospel and then waste our time. The greatest problem that mankind faces is the truth that God is holy, righteous, and just, and none of us are. God created the heavens and the earth, and He created you to live in a relationship with Him. But because of your sin, that relationship has been severed. And what's worse is you, by your nature, have willfully rebelled against God. The sin that you do was the stuff that you wanted to do because you love it. And as such, God's divine and holy justice was hanging over your head. The wrath of God abided over you. And if you were to die in that state, you would one day face God, and He would remind you very clearly of who you are in light of His holy law. And He would rightly pronounce you guilty, and then would send you to the place that you rightly deserve to be, which is hell. And that is the place that you would spend all eternity in torment as the just and right punishment for the sins that you committed against the holy and righteous God. Now some people say, well, why would God send somebody to hell for sin? It's not just the sins, the issue. It's who you're sinning against. You're sinning against an infinitely worthy, infinitely holy God. And there's nothing you can do on your own to fix it. You can't change it by your own efforts or your own attitude. You can't be sincere enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't be caring enough or overcome your own sin by your own effort in any way, shape, or form. You're truly helpless with no hope at all. And and because of that, it doesn't matter how awesome your life on earth is. You can have all the money. You can have all of the fame and you can have all the best experiences that life has to offer, but in the end, it would be meaningless because when you will still face God and when you do, you will have the same universal problem of all of mankind. That's the problem that all people faced, that we were all sinners on our way to hell with no power to change it on our own. But the good news is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news. That is the good news that ought to make us rejoice. That's the statement that Paul rejoices in. Jesus Christ came into the world to do what is impossible for us to do on our own. He came to do all the things that we can't do for ourselves. Jesus Christ, the the eternal Son, came and took on flesh to live the perfect life that you could not live in order to secure for you a righteousness that is not your own. And He died on the cross to make atonement for your horrific sin. And then three days later, He rose, proving that that sin and death have been conquered and that He can do exactly what He promised to do, which is what? Save sinners. That is Christ's mission. Christ came into the world to glorify God by saving sinners. By the way, that's by extension the mission that we're called to as members of His body, of His church. If you were in Christ, 
You were called to the Great Commission to join Christ in saving sinners. But Paul says, Christ came in the world to save sinners. He says, of whom I'm the foremost. And I don't want you to lose sight of this. Right? I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. He says that Christ came to save sinners. I'm the foremost. Or in other words, in other translations, I'm the worst sinner. Another translation says, I'm the chief among sinners. In fact, Hugh has a really cool t-shirt that has that. And notice Paul, he doesn't say, I was the foremost. Notice the language. He says, I am the foremost. I am the worst. In fact, the, uh, the Greek verb that he uses here is present tense, indicative, active, which gives a sense of an ongoing reality. Paul says, Christ came in the world to save sinners, and even now, in this moment, I'm still the worst kind of sinner. What a stunning admission. I can't overemphasize this enough because Paul, again, doesn't say that he what he was before. He says that I am now the worst. Now, why would he say that? Why would Paul, the Apostle Paul, three missionary journeys, changed the world, martyred for the faith, why would he say that he's the worst? There, in fact, there are some people who say, well, Paul's just using hyperbole. He's just, you know, being overdramatic here, you know, to make his point. He doesn't really think he's the worst. No, I, I disagree with that. I think, I believe that he believes that he is the worst. Because, number one, because of context and in the language, but also Paul knows himself better than he knows anyone else. And he also knows the law. Paul continually beholds the glory and the perfection of God through the law, and he sees himself in all the areas where he's still falling short. Paul, as a mature Christian, is keenly aware of how undeserving he is, still even to that day, of God's grace. And what Paul is in essence saying is, if God can save me, He can save anyone. That's the emphasis of what Paul is driving at here. And that ought to be our own attitude. The law ought to make us so incredibly humble. As we look at the law and look at ourselves, we should come to the same conclusion that we are the worst kind of sinners. Because you know, you know yourself better than anyone else. And that thought should drive our actions and our attitude towards others. We ought to see in ourselves the brokenness that continually drives us to the cross. We ought to see in ourselves all of the reasons why God should reject us. We should look at the law and see that we absolutely have no boast at all. We have no claim to righteousness on our own. And as such, we have no business looking down our noses at anyone. This idea, one of the things that pains me so deeply is when, when you talk to non-Christians who right, rightly say, you Christians are a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. Now, I, I will say that there are people who say that because they don't want to be confronted in their sin. But there are people who legitimately say that because they've been treated that way. We, we, we ought not to live that way because we have no claim of righteousness on our own at all. Right? And as such, we have no business looking down our noses at anyone. We, right? 
We don't have any business at all because we possess nothing in our own that makes God love us. Even now, we have no redeeming value within ourselves. There's nothing in us that compels God to say, yeah, you're pretty good. I'll go ahead and accept you. There's nothing here. There's nothing that demands that God pay attention to you, much less save you. You were saved by His grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. End of story. You have no reason. We have no reason. I have, I have no reason to look down my nose at anyone. Why? Because I'm the worst kind of sinner. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, If any man talks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you, are, thinks you to be. I think that bears repeating. If a man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. The law ought to make you humble. Extremely humble. That's why I've always struggled with those who claim to be Christians. Right? But then they have this sense of smug self-righteousness. That somehow, they, since they became a Christian, now they go to church and they get dressed up on Sunday morning. And, right, and they say things like, glory to God. That right? somehow that they are a better person. No, they're just redeemed. That's it. Which is not true. They're not better. Paul, the greatest evangelist in history of Christianity, looks into the law and confesses he's the worst kind of sinner. Again, this ought to remind us that we're no better than anyone. And it also ought to remind us of the truth that no one, no one is beyond redemption. Let us never linger in that territory. We think when we look at someone else's life, there's no way God's going to save them. God saves the worst of the worst. You know how I know that? Because He saved you. And He saved me. Right? He saved the likes of uh, David Berkowitz, son of Sam. What a compelling gospel story. Right. He's the guy that murdered a bunch of people in New York with a 44 Bulldog revolver, went to, went to prison for it. And people began to, somebody began to witness to him over and over again. And he's like, you're stupid. God, there's no way God would ever love me. And he just kept preaching, kept sharing the word with him. And one night he prayed, if you're real, and if you are who they say you are, then come into my life, a new man. Spent the, now he's spending all of the rest of his years in his life in prison, evangelizing the lost in prison. This ought to remind us to be humble because we were saved, not because of anything within us, but because of the vast expanse of God's grace. Notice Paul says, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord overflowed. The English language just does not do justice to what Paul is saying here. The word that Paul is using here for overflowed means beyond counting, right? It means exceedingly plentiful. The idea that Paul is communicating here is this endless stream of grace. We think about how vast the ocean is. And if that were a way to measure grace, we would say that is but a drop in the, the, the greater ocean. How can a righteous God save the worst kind of sinners? 
with endless amounts of grace. Because that, by the way, is what's required. The very idea again ought to drive us to our knees in humility and gratitude. We are saved and brought into a right relationship with God because not because of anything within us, not because of any worth that we have. We are made right with God, right? not by our own will, but by the will of God Himself and the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are made right with God by His limitless, abounding grace. When you look into the law of God and you see what you have been and what you still are, it is then you can see the overwhelming fountain of grace and that ought to move you to a deeper, greater love for God, a deeper desire to, to serve Him and to please Him and to be obedient to Him. Which, by the way, is why we were saved. And Paul continues and says, "...by I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life." You see, the reason why you were saved was, was to show others in the world what, he, what God can do. If God can work the miracle that brought you to salvation, then He can do it for someone else. If God can save you, He can save anyone. If, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, okay? I'm, I'm standing here saying this because it, it, this applies to me, I believe, even, even greater. If God can save Sherman Burkhead, then He can save anyone. If God can take this wretched man here, and use Him for His glory to proclaim the gospel of grace, there's no telling what He can do through you. The law of God ought to produce in us deep, reverent humility. And the law of God ought to produce in us a high view of God. Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Listen to the language that he's using here. He didn't say to my sky daddy, right? He didn't say to, the, to Jesus, my homeboy, right? He uses language that, that betrays a very high, reverent view of God. When Paul beholds the law of God, he beholds the glory of God. And as we saw, as we've seen, the, the, the law reveals God's character. It reveals His perfections. It reveals His holiness. It reveals His glory. One of the greatest deficiencies in the American experience with Christianity today is we just lack a sufficiently high view of God. That's why there's a lack of reverence for God in worship. I think that people oftentimes don't realize that when the church comes together for worship, that, that we're here for one purpose, and it's Him. We're not here to make an appearance. We're not here to visit and catch up. I mean, that's we can do that before and after, and that's certainly the fellowship's part of it. But once we worship, once we begin worship, our hearts and minds and attention should be fixed indelibly on Him. That's also why people have a tendency to think that church is about an experience to be had. Right? There's a sense that, that, that if I didn't feel something, then I didn't really worship. Then you don't really, you weren't really worshiping then if it, if it was about your feeling. That's why people think that choosing church 
is like choosing a restaurant. Well, you know, I like this, but I don't like that. And I like this, but I don't like that. Are they preaching the word of God? Are they faithfully worshiping the Lord? All of these issues are rooted in the same thing. The church and many Christians just don't have a high enough view of God. For many people, God is just this benevolent man in the sky. He's like the perfect grandfather. He's our spiritual buddy. He's this warm, fuzzy idea that makes us comfortable when things get really, really hard. Forgetting the fact that he's the holy creator of the universe. He is the uncreated creator. He is the self-existing, all-powerful sovereign of all things. The one who needs no one and nothing at all from us. The one who is the very definition of righteousness and justice. Too many of us just don't have a high enough view of God, and because of that, we have an over-elevated view of mankind. When you don't see God for who He is, as revealed in the law, you by default tend to value who mankind is. Listen to the language that you hear today in modern evangelicalism. That's even the rationale that people are using to say, y'all just need to do what you're told to do and forget about worshiping together. You guys can do that online. It's an over-elevated view of mankind and an under-elevated view of God. That's why we hear people say things like, I'm a good person. <sighs> when somebody uses as a rationale, I'm a good person, they just truly don't understand the holiness of who God is. I'd like to think, even in my worst of times as a human being, by comparison to a number of people in our world, if I got to set the bar by my own standard, I would like to think I was a decent person. But even now, just to say, like the words, I'm a good person, is, it's like I almost want to like choke on that because I know it's not true. Because the Bible says no one is good. Only God is good. This is why the law of God is so important. Because when we look at, into the perfect law of God, we see who God really is, and it ought to produce in us, in us a high view of God. And then, and then having a high view of God... You can now stand and gaze in the mirror of God's law and see who you really are and see how it is by God's grace. It is by God's grace that you're even alive this very moment, much less that He saved you. Bodie Bauckham, in one of his um, sermons, says it this, you really want to understand God's grace? God's grace is the fact that He didn't kill you in your sleep last night for the things that you did and you thought and you said yesterday. When you understand who God is, you understand His law, you become keenly aware of the fact that it's by His vast grace that He allows you to continue to live in spite of the fact that you continue to sin against Him. And even more than that, He sent His Son into the world to earn for you the righteousness you need to have a relationship with Him. And He killed His Son to make atonement for your sin. All of that sin, past, present, and future. He ongoingly covers your sin with His grace. The law of God ought to produce in us a high view of God and cause us to live humbly, gratefully, 
and in reverence before him, the law of God also ought to move us to true worship. True worship. By the way, that's what happened to Paul here. Paul talks about the law. He's moved to gratitude, and then he ends up worshiping. Notice what he says. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Even as I was reading the, the, the text this morning, I got amen before I even got there. This last verse, by the way, is called a doxology. Now, we talk about doxologies a lot, but what does that actually mean? Well, a doxology is defined as an expression of praise to God, especially a short hymn sung as part of Christian worship service. Paul rightly begins to worship here. An example of, of a doxology is like the song we sang last week, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? That's called a doxology. And that's where Paul is led. Paul is led by these truths to worship God. He thinks about the law and he remembers who he is. And he's mindful of, of where he's been. And he understands because of the law what he's done. And he remembers what God by His grace you know, has done for him. Not only has saved him, but invites him to join the mission of Christ to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. And because of that truth, Paul is just moved to worship. He can't help but to worship. The law of God ought to move us to worship. It ought to cause us to continually rejoice in God's goodness, in mercy, in grace. It is the lens by which we can see those truths so clearly. The law used rightly ought to produce in us a life of worship. As we continue to look in the law of God and see His character, and we see who we really are in light of that character, and we continually behold God's mercy and grace, that God is actively in every moment pouring out on us, that ought to, to move us to seek to worship God with reverence and respect in every area of our lives. Here on Sunday morning, for sure, but also at home on Monday nights when you're tired and beat up from the world. It ought to move you to worship at school, at work, on the football field. Our lives should be marked with worship as we meet new people in the store, as we encounter people who don't see things the way that we do. The law of God is good, and it ought to, we ought to look at it continually, worshiping God for it. In fact, David tells us in Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law he meditates day and night. He continually is looking into the law of God. And the implications then, the result of that is, he like a tree is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's the promise that we will bear the fruit that God has called us to bear in our lives. As we abide in him, looking and meditating upon the law of God. The law of God is glorious, church family. Because it, it gives us the foundation to see who God is. It helps us to see 
clearly, without any ambiguity, what God has done. And it gives us the footing on which to take hold of the gospel, which is our hope. And so with that, Paul tells us the law is good if one uses it rightly. And then Paul demonstrates for us what the right use of the law produces in the life of a believer. It produces gratitude, humility, a high view of God, and it produces worship. And in light of that, there are a couple of things to consider by way of implication or application. Number one, we as Christians need to keep the law and the gospel at the center of our thinking so we continually walk in humility. I think, I think this is the conviction for me over the years because it's really easy to kind of slide into, I'm, you know, I'm a child of God, you know, member of the family of God. I'm not what I once was. And, and, and far and away, I'm not, but still have no cause to walk in pride and arrogance. If we're going to live as God's people in a way that's pleasing to Him, that attracts others to His grace, we need to continually walk in humility. Now understand, we ought to be bold in our proclamation of the truth. We should never, ever be ashamed to proclaim the truth. But we need to do so with humility, understanding that we ourselves don't deserve God's grace. We're not saved because of something special within us. We have no right to think of ourselves better than others at all. For us to think we are somehow morally superior to anyone else is to lose sight of the heinous nature of our own sin. We have nothing, nothing, nothing to brag about except the gospel of Christ. In fact, Paul says it very well in Galatians 6.14. He says, but as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So let us all walk in humility, but then also let us worship in reverence. This is a, an area I think that all of us could grow in. I know that over the years I've been growing in my own understanding of worship. We need to grow and understand who God is and grow in our reverence of God in worship. And in the way that we worship, in all of our contexts, right? I want you to realize there's a reason why we have evolved to change things the way that we do and the way we do things the way we do. There's a reason why we pick the songs that we pick. There's a reason why we put a pulpit back up here and actually put a real Bible on it. It's because we're trying to the very best of our abilities to go to the scriptures and say, what does it mean to worship the Lord? It's also why, by the way, we start with the creaturely things. You know, we talk for a moment, make the announcements. We make announcements like, you know, Happy Mother's Day. We let people know what's going on with the missionaries. And then there is a, a call to worship where we actually, we're calling you to now focus your heart and your mind and your attention on God and God alone, right? That's why we pray so much throughout the service. That's why Sarah prays in the back. That's why Matt prays out here. That's why. I pray, you know, before reading the scriptures, it's why we, we wrap up in prayer. Because we are trying to the best of our abilities to, to create an environment for all of us to do one thing, set our hearts and minds on Him and focus our attention on Him because He's worthy and He deserves that in our worship. We need to be mindful as a corporate body how we worship. But we also need to be mindful 
but how we worship God privately. And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about singing, right? I mean, you ought to raise your hands and close your eyes and sing all those worship songs when you're driving or when you're alone or exercising. Do all that. But what I mean by worshiping God privately is worshiping God in your relationships, remembering that you do all things as unto the Lord. All things, understanding that everything is to be done for the glory of God. And that means, and this is a personal conviction for me, that means how you talk to other people who really get under your skin. Pray for your pastor in that area right there. That's one of those ones I'm, I'm, I'm convicted of and I'm, I'm conscious of and I'm, I'm changing, I'm growing it, right? But we need to remember that every opportunity we encounter someone else to walk in humility and in reverent worship because we're, we are doing what we're doing for Him. It's easy in the moment because of our emotions to lose sight of that. Every part of your life is an act of worship from the way you raise your kids to the way that you use your resources that God has given you, to the way that you engage with other people. We should continually look into the law of God, reminding ourselves of who He is, remembering who we are, and recalling the overwhelming grace that He has given us, right? and then living accordingly, humbly and reverently before our holy and righteous God. Church family, if you've been saved, praise the Lord. That truth cannot be taken from you, no matter what else happens to you. And if that's all you have, you have more than your share to walk out of here worshiping this morning. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.